Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I wanted to focus on a certain type of figure of speech. This is something that's been in my brain for a little bit. I'm not quite sure how it got lodged there, but I've noticed recently there's a certain type of figure of speech that shows up a lot in political speeches and in uh, religious preaching and in self-help literature. And this is a figure of speech known as anti-metaboly, also known as inverted parallelism. So you're might not be familiar with the term. I wasn't before I had to like look this up and figure out what it mm-hmm. was called. But as, as soon as you hear some examples, you will instantly recognize the format. So anti-metaboly is realized in common expressions like the following. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Or it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. Or how about uh, this is one I was just talking to Rachel about this one. It's not the years in your life, but the life in your years. Oh, yeah. So this this is a type of structure that often just resonates with folksy wisdom, Mm -hmm. Uh, but sometimes much more than that. Like one example, probably the first example that came to mind when you brought this up uh, is the following famous quote from, from Frederick Nietzsche. Quote, Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss... The abyss gazes also into you. So it's that last pair there that's the mm-hmm. anti-metaboly. When you, G- gaze, you in- gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes into you. Uh, yeah. And of course, that's not folksy wisdom. That's some, some, some Nietzsche darkness right there. Yeah, and there are a lot of forms of it. That's one that offers a kind of scary twist on an initial thought. But there are also ones that are just sort of basic life advice. There's like, you know, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, or th- they're, they're the ones that don't even really offer that much of a twist. They just sort of uh, suggest a comprehensiveness of a, of a sentiment. And one example I would use here is the line from The Three Musketeers, all for one and one for all. So, you know, all of us taking care of each other and each one taking care of the others. Yeah, like sometimes it makes a statement resonate more it like truly makes a message more compelling and we'll and we'll get into the rhetorical details of that uh, uh, as we proceed uh, other times though it just makes a statement zing perhaps even in an artificial way and so yeah a lot a lot of this episode is going to be about why that is uh, and busting out some examples of why this is the case uh, i have to admit you, some of you might be thinking well how is this going to be a, a full episode uh th- there is plenty here to discuss i would when when you first brought it up i i was kind of wondering myself I was like is this a full episode i don't know I, but i trust joe so if he says there is there is uh and my, my wife asked the same thing and she's like is that going to be a whole episode? And uh, and I had to assure her, yes, there's there's a lot to consider here. Uh, it's it's a it's a far more fascinating topic than you might think. Uh, and also, as we proceed, we're going to bust out numerous examples from like film and, uh, and and literature and politics. And you're going to have lots of examples that come to mind as well. Uh, so a lot of the fun, I think, is going to be in thinking about uh, examples of anti-metaboly that you've heard before. And also thinking about ways that, you, you know, what it does and how you could potentially tweak other um, statements or even your, your way of thinking by using them more. Right. Uh, so I guess it's probably clear what it is now because of the examples we've given. But just to give a formal definition, anti-metaboly is an expression where a statement is repeated, but the second time you say it, the word order is transposed or inverted, usually employing the second phrase to offer some kind of twist on or emphasis to the meaning of the first phrase. Uh, And anti-metaboly, I think, is sometimes considered a specific form of a broader type of syntactic parallelism that's known as chiasmus or sometimes chiasmus. I think we're going to say chiasmus. That's a C-H-I-A-S-M-U-S. But both of them Take the form of ABBA. The difference is usually understood to be that in chiasmus, you don't have to repeat the same exact words. You can mm-hmm. state an inverted parallelism with different language. So uh, a, a broader chiasmus version of the Three Musketeers saying might be 
all for one and each for the others. So it still has the ABBA form, but it's just using different words to express the same idea inverted. Uh, another chiasmus could be something like, at daybreak we rise, we wake at the dawn. And you might hear immediately that phrases like this do pop up a lot in, in poetry, especially in a lot of older poetry. Yeah, uh, there's a, a, an example that I came across from Alexander Pope. His time a moment and his point, his space. Yes. And so anti-metaboly is just a version of this form of chiasmus, but using exactly the same words again in, in the inverted order. In a way, it reminds me a lot of elegant variation, you know, where, <laughs> where you're kind of saying the same thing twice, um, but doing, in a way, doing it in a way that makes you fa- sound maybe smarter or more profound. Um, I, I guess it, it, com- it basically breaks down to how it's used. But sometimes, it's, I guess, narrowing in on ex- the exact structure here, I often found myself thinking of that. Like, like you just said the same thing twice. Um, you, know, <laughs> you, just, you just rephrase the first thing you said. Um, but, uh, but if used properly, it can be quite effective. Yeah, it can be extremely rhetorically powerful. And again, like you said, part of the reason I wanted to talk about this today is to try to at least find some sort of thoughts about why it's rhetorically powerful. Uh, I'll I'll go out and spoil it and say I don't think we can have a conclusive answer here, but there are some interesting threads we can pull on. Um, You know, uh, in terms of the ABBA construction, I don't know if you found yourself doing this as well, but I was desperate to find an example of of uh, a chiasmus or um, uh, antimetaboly from the lyrics of Swedish supergroup ABBA, <laughs> but I was not able to <laughs> I do didn't so. Get there. But I think if you had to mess with their lyrics and create one, you might say, "If you change your mind, I'll be first in line, and if I'm first in line, you'll change your mind." I guess that would be an example of an antimetaboly uh, in imagined non-existent uh, ABBA lyrics. Mm-hmm. But I'm not an ABBA completist, so what? Please, what, what, I'm trying to think of ABBA songs. What is Dancing Queen? Dancing Queen. Dancing Queen. Queen Dancing. That that's not all that interesting. Yeah. Well, so one place you absolutely will find a lot of chiasmus and and specifically anti-metaboly is in the Bible and a lot of mm. other uh, ancient religious texts and proverbs. Uh, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, there is a scene where. Jesus is attacked by the Pharisees because he is supposedly violating the Sabbath law. So he's walking through a field with his disciples, and they're picking grain off the field to eat, and you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees challenge him on this, and he replies very cleverly, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mm. So that's one of the one of the common ways we see anti-metaboly used is to sort of like offer a defiant statement against an assumption or a defiant statement against conventional wisdom. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, you you know, your mind is in the box of the first half of the sentence. Let me blow your mind with the with inverting the word order in the second half. <laughs> But then there are, there are versions of anti-metaboly that are just more straightforward. Like in the book of Genesis, we're told, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Um, so it's like, you know, okay, if you kill somebody, then somebody will kill you. Mm-hmm. But then it's also just like – so, you know, you go back into ancient literature and religious literature. A lot of it has this kind of powerful, profound feeling. But then you can also find it uh, being used in extremely playful ways. Uh, for example, in pop music, I, I think of the uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song, If You Can't Be With The One You Love, Love The One You're With. I think that can oh, that's, that's, a, that's a great example. That's yeah. a, I think it's a wonderful lyrical example. And one that when I hear it in that song, like it, it makes me stop and think and it, it feels – it, like it's a comfortable feeling of like the like this this interplay between the idea of of love as longing and love as being. Yeah, and it's like it it occupies this interesting ambiguous middle space between like is that statement supposed to be kind of a funny mischievous statement or is it supposed to be a, a profound philosophical statement? Yeah, it's true. I, I guess I tend to I tend to lean more profound on it just because I feel like that's the more the comfortable interpretation, but. Uh, but, you know, like, like any great lyrics, it's, it is open to interpretation. 
And then, of course, there's, you know, this might be the most cited example if you're looking for examples <laughs> of this on the Internet now, the, the Snoop Dogg line. Uh, it's in Gin and Juice, right? With my mind on my mm-hmm. money and my money on my mind. And I was trying to think about this one. I was like, actually, does the second phrasing there actually change the sense of the first phrasing? Or is it, or do the two halves of this really just mean the same thing? Like he's thinking about his money and the second half is just emphasizing the idea yet again. Well, I, you know, I too have wondered about this. Um, I, I also like to wrestle with rap lyrics and, and overthink them in many cases. For instance, in, um, in Natural Born Killers, Dre and Cube say there are, quote, six million ways to murder, choose one. And I'll often, every time I hear that, I'm like, six million? That's a lot. Like, is that, that's, that's an exhaustive list. Like, that's got to be a, just a very pedantic list of ways to murder somebody. Yeah. But it's also but it's, got it's got to have a lot of, uh, you know, sort of basic copies on the same theme. Like, yeah. <laughs> strangle in the bathroom, strangle in the hall. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Different places, all the different variations of things you could stab with. Even then, I don't know. This is kind of a, yeah, a mathematical question. But is, is it difficult to reach six million or is or is six million, uh, you know, underplaying it? Uh, though I was actually talking about this with Rachel this morning, and we realized there there could be another way of reading the Snoop Dogg lyric, which is that like the first half is sort of like I'm thinking about my money, and then the second half is like the heavy lies the crown, you know, the money's yeah. on my mind. That's that's the way I kind of like lean into overinterpreting uh, Gin and Juice is that yeah he's he's focused on his money, but at the same time the money is weighing heavily on on his thoughts. Um, Though I admit that it seems to clash with the overall vibe of the track, which is, of course, very laid back. Yeah. Celebratory. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you another one real quick because I don't know if we'll ever get a chance to discuss uh, overanalyzing rap lyrics on the show before. But um, uh, who, who was it? It was I think I think Cypress Hill did the um, did the beats and all. But uh, it was like a bunch of like Bostonites. Right. Who who rapped it? Um, not insane in the membrane, but the song that sounds similar. Oh, what am I thinking of? Um, Seth has jumped in and reminded me that it is House of Pain uh, with Jump Around. Well, there's there's a line in that where uh, the uh, the individual rapping informs everyone that he has more rhymes than the Bible has psalms, which I always found rather interesting because the Bible doesn't have that many psalms. There should be more rhymes at your disposal than psalms, Mm -hmm. but it rhymes. So I guess it works. Maybe they're counting like each line of the Psalms as a Psalm. I guess so. But it seems like you would need to go. I mean, the, the, the Psalms are, are very numerical. Like there, mm-hmm. there are a finite number of Psalms and it's not that high a number. But anyway, it's, it's a weird flex is what I'm saying. One of the great anti-metabolies in film, of course, is comes from Sam Elliott, right? That's right. Uh, playing the stranger in 1998's The Big Lebowski by the Coen brothers, where he famously says, sometimes you eat the bear and sometimes, well, he eats you. <laughs> the bar. Yep. <laughs> uh, so that's that's a wonderful one. And, and that's what I, I find myself thinking of and using sometimes, you know, it just kind of sums up like the nature of uh, the ups and downs of reality. Sure. Um, now, another uh classic example of this uh, that is purely from the realm of uh, of entertainment uh, and, and in particular comedy is the uh, the so-called russian reversal made famous by yakov smirnov with such quips as in america you can always find a party in soviet russia party always finds you yeah uh the other one i remember is uh in, in america you watch television in soviet russia television watch you <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, that very, very simple uh, use of anti-metaboly, but one that was quite successful for Yakov Smirnov. Do you remember when we had to read that Smirnov ad like five times because we kept saying Smirnov and they were like, no, you have to say smear? Oh, oh that's right. That was, it was like a Christmas ornament thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if Yakov is picky in the same way. <laughs> I don't know. Yakov fans will have to, to write in and let us know. Uh, now, another one of my favorite examples from the realm of comedy that I very often think about, especially around Halloween, is the, the line from uh, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Uh, this is the one with Hugo, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bart's um, evil twin that right. was separated from him and lives in the, the attic, where uh, uh, the doctor character says, too crazy for boys town, too much of a boy for crazy town. <laughs> It's one of Dr. Hibbert's great moments. Yeah. Yeah, that, that <laughs> that's a really very good, good pick. Mm-hmm. So there is – so I was looking around for 
solid sources getting into um, sort of like the history or science of, of anti-metaboly. And it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of direct research on it. We, we can get into that a little bit more later in the episode. But I did come across one very interesting book chapter that is in a book called Rhetorical Figures in Science, published by uh, Oxford University Press by an author named Jeannie Fanestock. Uh, this came out, I think, in around the year 2000 or maybe 2002. Uh, but Jeannie Fanestock is a professor at the University of Maryland and a scholar of rhetoric. And the book is more directly relevant to something I want to talk about in a little bit, which is the relationship between antimetaboly and scientific writing. Uh, but she also traces some good deep history of the rhetorical form in the beginning of this chapter. And so I, she finds what I'm aware of is like the oldest example known of anti-metaboly, which is in this ancient Sumerian epic poem known as Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and the Netherworld. And this dates back to the third millennium BCE. This might be rivaled by uh, one quote that you have from an Egyptian text, but – uh, this is going to be definitely one of the oldest known ones. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Gilgamesh Enkidu in the Netherworld was one of the Sumerian source poems that would later feed into the Akkadian epic of Gilgamesh. And there's a funny detail. I, I didn't quite realize this. Sometimes in Sumerian sources, the the epic hero, the Mesopotamian epic hero Gilgamesh is known as Bilgamesh, which is an objectively <laughs> funnier name. Yeah, that sounds like um, like a modern American remake of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the uh, the Epic of Bilgamesh. B Bilgamesh Hi. Baggins. <laughs> Bilgamesh. The name's Gamesh. Bilgamesh. <laughs> but anyway, so in this ancient Sumerian poem, uh, we encounter a couple of lines describing the setting in time that it's talking about. Uh, and it, it this so the setting reaches back according to the Smith translation, quote, after heaven from earth had been moved, after earth from heaven had been separated. Mm. And it so this actually is doing a couple of interesting things. Number one, it is an anti-metaboly. It takes the same two elements but then reverses their order. But it's also uh, indicative of a common device of ancient Near Eastern poetry and religious texts, which is that you uh, often repeat lines and ideas twice – with slight rephrasings and you can find this all throughout the Bible. Like you, you go through the, especially the poetic sections of the Hebrew Bible, the poetic sections of the book of Job of Psalms, uh, you know, where a lot of the greatest literature of the Hebrew Bible is. One example is in the Psalms, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. I will not eat it in a boat. I will not eat it with a goat. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. I've never thought about that, but I guess the Dr. Seuss may be quite biblically inspired. <laughs> but anyway, so the way it works is that both lines are making the same point, but they're repeating it with different words or imagery. And as I mentioned, the Bible's just full of this poetic device, but it also appears in other works of, uh, of ancient Near Eastern poetry. And this couplet in the Sumerian epic is an interesting variation because it is an anti-metaboly. It repeats the sense of a line but it does so with inverted order. And I wonder what is the poetic uh, purpose of that? Like what exactly is it that the author is trying to suggest by using this device where you repeat an idea twice, but the change in the second version is just that the order is transposed. Well, you know, I guess it, it's like um, it could be suggesting something about the mystery of the ancient past. Like, was it the earth that was taken out of the sky or was it the sky that was taken out of the earth? I don't know yeah. always what exactly the effect of phrasings like this is, but it, I, I find it really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it. in a way, a lot of the times you're getting into basically like chicken and egg paradox sort of stuff. Like mm -hmm. chicken came first, egg came first. We don't know. It's the mystery of the egg. <laughs> uh, I, one of the sources I was looking at uh, for this was um, a paper by Randy Allen Harris uh, titled uh, Antimetaboly and Image Schemata Ontolo Ontological and Vector Space Model. Um, this was very theoretical. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but in it, the, uh, the author briefly says that uh, Antimetaboly dates back to the 6th dynasty in ancient Egypt. So this, was, this would have been the twilight of the Old Kingdom during the 23rd century BCE. And I, I actually I had trouble running down 
an example of what the author was citing here. As best I could tell by looking at uh, some other papers, uh, he he may be referring to this pyramid text uh, that reads, the male serpent is bitten by the female serpent. The female serpent is bitten by the male serpent. Oh, and that's interesting because this will actually tie into a version of anti-metaboly that pops up in the history of scientific rhetoric, that which uh, that which asserts a symmetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I also ran across a really good one um, uh, from uh, Chinese history uh, from the 6th century BCE text, the Tao Te Ching. It goes, one who knows does not speak. One who speaks does not know. Oh, man, how true that often is. Mm-hmm. I I say with all invitations of irony as someone who speaks for a living. (laughs) (laughs) While these are some of the oldest examples we could could find uh, evidence of, Fanestock documents that anti-metaboly was just extremely common in the classical rhetoric of ancient Greece and Rome. So if you were trained in rhetoric by, I don't know, in the, in the tradition of Cicero or whatever, you would you would be trained to often employ anti-metaboly as one of your standard rhetorical figures. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, and, and certainly there's more going on here, it, it seems like a great way to just hammer home your point. Just hammer it home. Say it t- a, a, an elegant way of just going ahead and saying it twice sometimes. Uh, but I guess this brings us to the idea of anti-metaboly in scientific writing. Uh, and this is something that, that's raised in that chapter by Fanestock, which I found really interesting. So uh, to address the purpose of her book, in some ways, I think you could really see science and rhetoric as diametrically opposed projects. Like science is a method of studying and explaining nature by reference to empirical surveys, experiments, you know, recursive self-critical analysis. The goal is to figure out what's true and how things work, regardless of how you phrase it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, rhetoric is the art of shaping language to be maximally persuasive or effective, n- not necessarily with reference to what's true, right? Like you could have good rhetoric that makes a point that's completely false. Absolutely. Yeah, its goal is to impress audiences, change minds, and motivate action. And, you know, that that's good when it's deployed on behalf of the truth, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And it often is deployed on behalf of falsehoods. And yet, Fanestock argues for the importance of rhetoric and communication in shaping the development of science. You know, a lot of what her book is about is like looking at examples in history of how attempts to rhetorically communicate and persuade the essence of scientific discoveries actually sort of shaped the science itself. The scientific theories are in a way refined and clarified through attempts to communicate them in language. And I I find myself very sympathetic to this point because as I've said on the show before, I feel like I often really don't know what I think about something until I've tried to write about it. It's the process of writing that clarifies my judgment about what's actually true. Yeah, I find this to be the the case as well. In fact, I mean, I should probably utilize writing more often to sort of uh, solidify, uh, you know, sort of the storm of thoughts uh, that occur in the mind, you know. This is probably one of the advantages of uh, of keeping like a personal journal or diary. Absolutely. that is, uh, that is perhaps. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I haven't read any stats on you know people self-reporting their use of uh, of diaries and journals. But I mean, it seems like with uh, with the internet, a lot of that same energy goes into blogging and especially the use of social media, which ultimately becomes different because it's not a personal um, linguistic, written linguistic uh, treatment of your thoughts and experiences. But it is this thing that is created for consumption by others with with a with an intended audience in mind, and therefore it's it's not going to be as much of this uh, you know pure statement uh, or pure treatment of what's going on in your head, or at least that's, that's the way it seems to me. Uh, so I've, I've actually thought about this before. It's like I should I should try to do some some sort of journaling that has no audience other than myself in mind. That maybe even is completely physical in a notebook. You know, is not even mm-hmm. uh, you know touched by the internet at all. I, I think there are huge advantages. I I am absolutely sympathetic to this idea. I don't I don't know of any empirical evidence to confirm it, but I strongly suspect that. Personal journaling, especially journaling for uh, not for an audience, just for yourself, is intensely helpful in clarifying thought. Yeah, you don't even have to keep it. You can you can burn it afterwards, or uh, <laughs> or delete it afterwards. I mean, it's kind of like the famous um, 
uh, write your angry email and then um, don't send it. Yeah. You know, don't yeah. address it yet. <laughs> Wait and see how you feel a little bit later, because a lot of times just the act of writing the email, of, of putting your thoughts into words, will, will calm the storm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think there's something to that. Um, but to come back to the history uh, of science, so Fanestock points out all these examples of how anti-metabole pops up throughout the written history of science and philosophy of science. Uh, one idea that uh, that just came to me is the aphorism that is more philosophy of science than a theory itself, uh, but it's the aphorism, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And this is a mm. very com- – so this is clearly anti-metabole. It's sort of the perfect form of anti-metabole with no other you know, cluttering language. And it's basically making the point against the use of the argument from ignorance fallacy, saying that like just because you haven't seen an example of something, that doesn't allow you to conclude that it doesn't exist. Yeah, just because you haven't seen uh, Sasquatch – doesn't mean there is not a Sasquatch out there, right? Well, there, there. That's a good point, and there are interesting variations on, uh, like, further clarifying this idea because uh, because there are search spaces, right? And like, mm-hmm. there are degrees to which you should expect to have seen something already if you've looked around. Like, if you look inside a shoebox and you you know you don't see a mouse you can probably conclude there is no mouse in the shoebox cuz you can see the whole thing right. and so a lot of the times the question is how thoroughly have you exhausted the search space like yeah. how much do you think we've actually looked and and should we have expect uh, should we expect to have seen this thing in the given the search space that we've looked at but but you're exactly right that uh, this aphorism while i think it contains a lot of wisdom and is true is often deployed by people who are holding out hope for the existence of something that really we should probably fairly conclude doesn't exist at this point. Right. Uh, but there are a lot of good thoughts by, by Fanestock in this chapter. One is that she mentions a, a potential advantage of anti-metaboly as a, as a rhetorical device is that it often invites the reader or the listener to complete the thought in their own mind before the speaker has had to complete it themselves. And this ties into old courtroom wisdom, right? Like if you can get the jury to sort of say your assertion in their own heads rather than having you say it out loud or before you say it out loud, it's supposedly more convincing to them. And I think the same is probably true of an audience. Like if you uh, if you set up the idea that you're going to be stating an anti-metaboly, especially by maybe if you're saying a number of them or if it's one they've heard before or if it or if you set it up so it is clearly, you know, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but – People sort of already know where you're going with it, and if they say it themselves in their head first, it might be more convincing. Ah, yeah, like it it becomes the thought that they have generated. Yeah, but there are a lot of other ways that it's used. In scientific writing, one thing she points out is that anti-metaboly is often used to express a rejection of existing assumptions about the direction of causality. And this will come up again in a minute. Uh, I know you wanted to mention something about Newton, and, and it'll come up there. But one example that Fanestock cites is Benjamin Franklin explaining the mechanics of an electric shock, where Fra- Franklin wrote, quote, Fire does not proceed from the touching finger to the wire, as is supposed, but from the wire to the finger. Hmm. But there are other great examples from the history of science. Uh, there's one from Isaac Newton that I think you wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, yeah. I ran across this in uh, – basically what happened is I was I was searching for that ancient Egyptian um, uh, anti-metaboly tie-in. <laughs> and in doing so, I came across a paper titled Rhetorical Figure Annotation with XML by uh, <laughs> Ruan et al. published in Computational Models of Natural Argumentation in 2016. So this is like a computer science paper. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, like this is this is one. You know, one, sometimes you get lost in the woods a little bit. Uh, uh-huh. But this was uh, I ended up running across this uh, interesting knowledge campfire uh, because uh, the the authors you know, write in a very uh, you know absorbable way here, and uh, and they they deal with like a basic treatment of anti-metaboly, and uh, the authors state that anti-metaboly is often used to convey reciprocal force. Uh, This is present in the Nietzsche example that we've mentioned uh, already, but they present a very compelling example from the writings of Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, And this is the quote, if you press a stone with your finger, the finger is also pressed by the stone. Mm. And of course, this is more formalized in Newton's third law. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. 
Yeah, Fanistock cites this one too as as being a really important one. And this is this rhetorical figure is another way that antimetaboly shows up a lot in the history of science, um, which is to clarify symmetries inherent in nature. And when you think about it, much of the development of theories of physics has just been the recognition of previously unknown symmetries in physical mm-hmm. reality. So like the recognition of universal gravitation, that's a symmetry, you know, it's not just that you fall to the earth, but also the earth is attracted to you, that all objects with mass are attracted to each other. And uh, another one of these symmetries that's phrased as an anti-metaboly shows up in the writings of Michael Faraday, very important historical scientist, uh, uh, on the relationship between magnetism and, and electricity. Faraday wrote after, after making some discoveries in his experiments, quote, Hence the wire moves in opposite circles round each pole and or the poles move in opposite circles round the wire, showing the, uh, a symmetry between uh, magnetic effects and electrical effects. Interesting, yeah. Now, that, that Ruan et al. paper that I mentioned, they also point out that antimetaboly is often used to convey reciprocal specification. Uh, they use the example of a 2011 Hillary Clinton quote, quote, gay rights are human rights and human rights are gay rights, a variation of a statement on women's rights that she made in 1995. But in either case, the idea is that these two things mutually identify each other. Yeah, and, and I think part of the idea expressed here is um – it's about qualifying, right? So like gay mm-hmm. rights are a an example of human rights. And then in the second half, in order to really mean human rights, that must include gay rights. Right. Now, they also point to comprehensiveness as a key factor in uh, anti-metaboly usage. Their example is a place for everything and everything in its place. Mm. Uh, they write, quote, we call this function comprehensiveness because sequential Iconicity means a back and forth, alpha to omega, omega to alpha coverage of some domain. In this case, the domain of tidiness. I think this this type of expression, the comprehensiveness version, might be what's implied in that really ancient Sumerian creation example, right? Yeah. The the uh, the stating of the inversion this way sort of implies there's an irrelevance of order, which in turn implies like total transcendence. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, they, uh, Ron et al., also point to Dr. Seuss on this one <laughs> with the quote, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. That That's a good one, too, because that also has that religious quality, but the comprehensiveness there is in order to end the discussion, right? That's what you say when you're like, this conversation is over. Yeah. Well, anyway, so this brings me back to a, a question I was wondering about, which is why is anti-metaboly so common in specifically the, the context where I think I see it the most are political speeches, self-help writing, and religious preaching? Mm-hmm. And, of course, you can think of tons of examples from political speeches. Uh, maybe one of the most famous anti-metabolies in history is John F. Kennedy in his inaugural address in 1961 saying, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Yeah, yeah that's a big one. Uh, but then there's another one. I, I found a number of examples in uh, in a Slate article from 2008 that was talking about uh, how many of these – types of cliches were being deployed in the 2008 presidential campaign. Uh, But one it quoted was Bill Clinton speaking in the 90s, saying, people the world over have always been more impressed by the power of our example than by the example of our power. Hmm. And I think you heard this line repeated. I think sometimes Barack Obama would say this too. Okay. And this is one of those anti-metabolies that's attempting to offer a contrast, right? It's, you know, it's not this, but that. You might call that a, a size of the fight in the dogoid. Version. Oh, right. Yeah. And I was trying to think, okay, just like at a qualitative sense, when I hear these things, what is most often happening in these political speeches, especially like especially political or religious or motivational rhetoric? What is the anti-metaboly doing? And it seems to be most often it's, first of all, inviting emphatic agreement. Anti-metabolies are the kinds of statements that the way they're placed in a speech they're supposed to make the audience start nodding vigorously or yelling out, yeah, that's right. You know, Amen, brother. Yeah. It, exa- it's the amen, brother moment, which is interesting in itself. Uh, furthermore, they often, especially when they're phrased in the not X but Y thing, uh, that they show defiance. In a political speech, 
anti-metabolism is often framed as a wise rebuke to a naive piece of conventional wisdom. You know, people might say that X comes from Y, but we know that Y comes from X. Mm. And then also, it's clearly supposed to achieve pithiness. That that's a core quality of anti-metabolism. It feels like when an, when an anti-metabolism lands in a political speech. It feels like a good point has been made without the need for any supporting evidence or argumentation. You notice that like yeah. when, you, when you land an anti-metabolism, you don't have to back up your point really. S- simply hearing it creates the impression that the speaker has proven a point. Yeah, it's almost <laughs> at times, again, with the weakest examples, it can almost feel like, well, it rhymes. It must be true. Yeah, that rhymes and you know it rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> So I was thinking about reasons why these things could be the case. Why does anti-metabole achieve those ends? And I have a hypothesis. I don't have a way of proving this, but this seems to go in line with uh, what a lot of people have written about different types of uh, poetic and rhetorical devices as used in speeches like this. And my hypothesis is that anti-metabole could be particularly effective at causing people to reframe their thinking about an issue by taking advantage of processing fluency. Now, processing fluency is something we've talked about on the show before. It is the ease with which different information is processed. For example, you show you show somebody a picture of a face. You know, it's Hugh Grant's mm-hmm. face. And you show it right side up. That has much greater processing fluency than the same picture of Hugh Grant's face shown upside down. Different types of information have different processing fluency values, and that goes for spoken and written sentences as well. Some are processed very easily. Some are harder to process. Familiar statements have greater processing fluency than novel statements, and this is one of the proposed explanations of the illusory truth effect that we've talked about on the show before. I think we've got a couple of episodes about that. Yeah. Uh, where if you hear a claim repeated, you start to believe it more and more. Studies have found this somewhat small but consistent effect where if you've already been exposed to a statement in the past, it starts to seem more true when you're exposed to it again. And why would this be? Well, a leading contending explanation is processing fluency. It's easier to process because you've seen it before, and because it's easier to process, it feels more true. And for that same reason, I think it's possible that anti-metabole has a processing fluency advantage over other types of statements because it involves repetition of the same words. So you get the advantage of getting like a twist on something that feels kind of novel and exciting by inverting the word order. But it's also got a processing fluency advantage because it's literally the same words repeated twice. Yeah, yeah. Again, just coming back to the idea of yeah, just you're just saying something the same thing differently a few different times. And, and it can have this effect on making it seem more true. Now, in, in terms of some of the other powers of anti-metabole that we've mentioned, um, uh, I, I found the, this, this rather interesting. I was, I was mainly, I think, checking out the pronunciation uh, issues here, but I ran across uh, uh, a, a talk, a video on YouTube by one Mr. Skype Lessons or <laughs> Dave Nich- Nichols. Uh, that's actually quite good. I recommend j- checking these videos out because he, oh, he okay. has like a bl- blackboard. It's just a guy in front of a blackboard. Uh, taking you through uh, various concepts. I, I think a lot of them are rhetorical, but I'm not sure what other topics he may cover. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the end of this piece where he was talking about anti-metabolies and related items, uh, he was making the case for incorporating them in them and other uh, rhetorical uh, structures into one speech. And it made me wonder if more of us forced ourselves to use anti-metabolies, would that encourage the sort of anti-metabole instinct? I wonder if it would, you know, could serve to expand thought or, or I guess it also depends on just how you're using it. Uh, but in another sense, it comes back to that old linguistic concept, right? Does cognition come before language or does language come before cognition? Well, I think there is absolutely to the idea that putting constraints and pressures on the formation, on the, the expression of thoughts can lead to things like creativity. Uh, I think this is this is a case that's often been made about the role of meter and rhyme in poetry, that it's not mm-hmm. only pleasing to hear meter and rhyme, that when you're forced to follow meter and rhyme, you end up 
choosing words and, and landing on ideas that you wouldn't have arrived at otherwise. They don't just grow naturally out of your brain, but they're forced by the constraints of the, the poetic uh, devices. And so that, that can lead to like – it can take you places you wouldn't have gone otherwise. One of my favorite uses of anti-metaboly in, in poetry uh, comes from a poem by Wallace Stevens titled Connoisseur of Chaos. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's great because it is, bo- is an anta- anti-metaboly that is then followed by basically a definition of what he just <laughs> did. Uh, but the, the poem, which is, which is quite good, uh, you know, it, it deals with you know, the idea of opposite things, partaking of one, uh, reciprocal specification. But uh, it starts off by saying, A, a violent order is a disorder, and B, a great disorder is an order. These two things are one pages of illustrations. <laughs> That's a really good triplet, yeah. Now, another thing I was wondering about is, is there any scientific or empirical evidence that that uh, statements that are phrased in a certain rhetorically appealing way, whether that's you know through using poetic devices like rhyme and meter or even rhetorical devices like anti-metaboly, does that actually translate to a measurable change in perception of accuracy? Like, is it actually measurably more persuasive? And I did find some studies looking at this. I'm not sure how robust the findings are, but but I at least want to talk just for a minute about what I came across. So a couple of relevant papers I found uh, were by Matthew S. McGlone and Jessica Tofigbakish. Uh, the first was called The Keats Heuristic, Rhyme as Reason, and Aphorism Interpretation, published in Poetics in 1999. The next, by the same authors, was called Birds of a Feather Flock Conjointly, uh, Rhyme as Reason in Aphorisms. This was in Psychological Science in the year 2000. And uh, the authors here wanted to test poetic forms to see if they would affect the perceived accuracy of statements. So what they did was – They took collections of aphorisms and then had volunteers rate them for accuracy. Like, how true do you think this statement is? And some of the aphorisms were rhyming aphorisms. For example, what sobriety conceals, alcohol reveals. Or caution and measure will win you treasure. But then they substituted some modified examples that were almost identical aphorisms but without the rhyme – So that would be what sobriety conceals, alcohol unmasks. Caution and measure will win you riches. And did this difference make – did this make a difference in accuracy judgments? The authors claim that it did. They say on average subjects found rhyming aphorisms more accurate but only if they were not warned to think about it, only if they were not warned to make their judgment, quote, only on the claim that the statement makes about behavior, not the poetic quality of the statement's wording. So it seems like when people were put on guard about the idea of uh, of, the, of rhyming or poetic qualities, the advantage in accuracy perception of rhyming aphorisms was reduced. And they attribute their finding to processing fluency. They, they note that there could be other factors – possible word choice preferences or meter preferences, but uh, but that's what they came up with. And so so that would be for rhyming, not for anti-metaboly. But if those findings are correct, that would at least suggest that, yeah, like it, <laughs> if you're not sufficiently primed to be on guard about the dangers of mistaking rhyme for reason, you might actually be uh, likely to mistake rhyme for reason. And that could be true for other poetic or rhetorical devices as well. Which would kind of confirm our crude intuitions, right? I mean, that rhymes and you know it rhymes. (laughs) There was another paper I just wanted to look at quickly um, uh, by Minninghouse et al. published in Poetics in 2017 called The Emotional and Aesthetic Powers of Parallelistic Diction. Now, again, I don't know how uh, deeply this applies or how robustly this applies to what we're talking about. But just as an interesting uh, point of background, this was a general study – on the psychological effects of different kinds of what they call stylistic parallelism or parallelistic diction on readers. Now, obviously, there are tons of different kinds of, quote, parallelism uh, to read from their paper, quote, In its original meaning, the term parallelism was, and partly still is, specifically used to designate entire sentences or phrases that feature syntactically, morphologically, and mostly also semantically parallel members. 
The repetitive sentence patterns in several parts of the Old Testament are key examples of parallelism. So this is what we were talking about earlier, where the same line is – the idea is expressed twice but in different language. Uh, but then they invoke a, a more modern definition, quote, all features of linguistically non-mandatory recurrence – and this can mean a lot of different things, right? It can mean alliteration. You're repeating the sounds at the beginnings of words for no particular reason. It can be rhyme. You're repeating the sounds at the ends of words for no particular reason. But it can also be structural. You're repeating uh, you know, a couple of elements in a sentence like an ABBA pattern such as anti-metaboly. And while this study isn't specifically about anti-metaboly, Obviously, anti-metaboly is one of these highly relevant forms of linguistically non-mandatory recurrence. There's a parallelism where the second half of the thought is a mirror image of the first. And so the authors here picked this broad corpus, a corpus of different sort of lines of poetry bearing parallelistic diction and had people rate their reactions to them on a, on a sort of broad survey of psychological effects. And what they found was kind of interesting to me. They write, quote, the presence versus absence of the parallelistic patterns caused higher ratings for sadness, being moved, joy, intensity, and positive affect in sadly moving poems, and higher ratings for joy, being moved, intensity, and positive affect in joyfully moving poems. Parallelistic features hence served as general intensifiers of emotional impact, regardless of whether the key emotional content of the poems was sad or joyful. And so if this study is correct, what they find is that lots of different kinds of parallelism in, in words and in sentences just cause you to sort of like feel more powerfully whatever it is is being evoked. And that can go in any different direction, happiness or sadness. You feel it more strongly, more intensely if there are these parallelisms in the language. Mm. So it's kind of like um, linguistic MSG sprinkled over a, a dish. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, I mean, you could actually even say this about salt. Uh, like mm -hmm. uh, the use of salt in, in sweet foods often sort of intensifies the, the, the sweetness experience of the dessert. Yeah. Now, if this is correct, I, I do think that's really interesting. And I, and I wonder why that is. So like, why is it that um, non-mandatory repetitions within language or, or parallel types of word choices or sentence structure would cause you to have more intense feelings about something uh, that it could be something that we're just trained on throughout life. Like you recognize this as sort of the form of poetry and you know, that poetry is supposed to make you feel something. Uh, I, I, you can't rule that out. But then again, I, I just note, you know, when I experience poetry myself, it, it feels more primal than that. It feels like something's happening that is not part of just a conditioned response to the category of poetry. It's kind of similar to how even really inane lyrics in a moving song, you know, can uh, mm -hmm. can feel profound. Now, there's one other paper I wanted to mention, but uh, this one comes with a big caveat. I actually did find one paper specifically about how anti-metaboly affects the perceived accuracy of a statement. But unfortunately, it is like brand new. It's from this year, and I found it on a preprint server on, on Psych mm -hmm. Archive, uh, not in an actual journal. So it has not yet, as far as I know, like passed the editorial process. It's possible that you know there, there could be problems with it that would be recognized later. So I don't want to dwell on this or cite it as, uh, as proof, but maybe if it's formally pr published, we can come back to it in a flaming barrel chat or something and revisit in more detail. Just briefly, it's by uh, Kara Yakubian et al., uh, this year called Accuracy Judgments Are Swayed by Chiasmus and Chiasmus Sways Accuracy Judgments, Anti-Metaboly and the Keats Heuristic. And what they claim in, in this preprint version is that they found in three out of four experiments that anti-metabolic statements like success is getting what you want, happiness is wanting what you get, are judged as more accurate than semantically equivalent non-anti-metabolic statements. Uh, so that would be modified to be something like success is getting what you wish, happiness is wanting what you receive. Mm. So maybe we can come back to that in the future if that, uh, that ever gets published. Yeah. You know, a couple of, of other examples of, of anti-metabolism that come to mind that I, that I frequently think of is uh, the idea of, of a, an artist or a creator or just someone engaging in a project. You know, it's often said that they either 
the, the main version is they um, they bit off more than they could chew, uh-huh. you know. But then the reverse of that is they chew more than they bit off. <laughs> uh, I often find that that helpful uh, in in thinking about you know particularly like films and all like oh boy they really they really tackled more than they could handle or wow they really they really chewed this one up for way more than was necessary. I, I think I've heard you say that before. They're chewing more than they bit off. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's a that's a fun one. It, um, it's the difference of like uh biting off more than you can chew is like being in over your head. Chewing mm-hmm. more than you bit off is like standing in a ankle deep water maybe peeing into it or something. Yeah, or you know making um making a really sloggy art picture, you know, about um I don't know, you know, like a, if you do like an 8-hour documentary series about oh um the shoehorn. Mm-hmm. That seems like you might be you might. I don't know. Could have. A, I've not looked into it. It could that, have. That's what really, we do. <laughs> it is what we do. And sometimes, I mean, it, you know, we were talking about overanalyzing uh, lyrics of songs, mm-hmm. uh, which is a fun exercise. But it is an exercise often in chewing more than you bite off. Yeah. Like you're really making more out of out of what uh, uh, out of what was intended. Uh, and I don't know. That can be a lot of fun. You got to chew on something, right? I think some of your favorite films are uh, chewing more than they bit off. Uh, Films I love, too. I would say that is an accurate description of the great uh, film Beyond the Black Rainbow. Yeah. I I find it an excellent exercise to watch films that either bite off more than they could chew or chew more than they bite off. And then I myself will chew more than I bite off concerning my viewing (laughs) of the film. And, um, yeah, this is pretty much my approach to life. Well, I don't know if we could conclude anything solid about anti-metaboly here, but it's still really banging around in my head. And uh, this has been interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you indulged me on this topic. Oh, absolutely. I, I knew if you, if you thought there was an episode here, there'd be an episode here. And ultimately, I feel like this was a great topic for the podcast. And this was a great podcast for this topic. Oh. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody about this. What are some of your favorite examples of anti-metaboly? Uh, how do you how do you feel about some of the quotes we mentioned here, or other quotes that are coming to mind? Uh, you know, are they are they are they resonating with 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 truth, or do you feel a little manipulated by them? Uh, yeah, we'd we'd love to hear from everybody. Um, in the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. If you, if you can, rate, review, and subscribe. Great way to help out the show. Uh, always feel free to go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for our page. And yeah, the episodes are there. There's also a button for a store. You can go there. You can buy like a shirt, a sticker, uh, what a, like tote bags and whatnot that have our logo on it if you so desire. Um, there's also some, some other cool designs on there, some monsters and whatnot. There's a cool new Pandora shirt that a listener made for us that is uh, super cool. Uh, make sure you check that out. Yeah, sure it up. But maybe in the near future, we're going to end up with a, with a good Weird House Cinema uh, Mad Love Sausage Man t-shirt. I feel like that's going <laughs> to happen. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to get some sort of Weird House uh, content into our store for sure. All right. So anyway, uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.